0: May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So just a um, completely obscure question before we get going. How many people know how many books are in the New Testament? Anyone? Not even close. 27. So it was a pub quiz question on Thursday, and it took me ages to get it right. I didn't know, so I wrote down all the books of the New Testament, but I missed out Titus and one or two Thessalonians. So then, when there was a question about Roman emperors, I went, Titus? And then I went, No, there's another couple of books in there, just chuck in two more. And then we got it right. But Thessalonians, eh? They just slipped out of my memory. Twenty-seven. So if you ever in a pub quiz question, there are twenty-seven books in the New Testament. Which means there are thirty-nine in the Old Testament. Because there are sixty-six altogether, not counting the Apocrypha. So that's the Protestant Bible. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the season of creation. This Sunday is the last Sunday in our season of creation, most of which we have done online. As I've said in the last few weeks, the season of creation is when we have joined the worldwide family, Christian family, uh, so Orthodox, Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, Episcopalians, and other denominations around the world in a celebration of prayer and action to protect our common home. The theme for this year was Jubilee for the Earth, which uh, is based on the year of Jubilee, in Leviticus 25, which, as I've said in other weeks, essentially pushed the restart button every 50 years. The debts were forgiven, the slaves were freed, the land was returned to the initial owners. So it was a restart button every 50 years. And by having this thing, the organisers, and I agree with them, are saying, we need to push the restart button. Just as ancient Israel needed, we need to be reminded that we are created in the image of God, who is the creator and sustainer of all, and in the light of that, to reconsider our relationships, both with God's creation and all who share our common home, and in particular, our response to climate change and the destruction of the web of life through biodiversity loss. This year, we've also joined the celebration not using the readings set down each week by the organisers for the season of creation, but uh, continuing to use mostly the readings uh, for that particular week in the um, Revised Common Lectionary, I'm always sticking with the Gospel reading from Matthew. Whenever we read Matthew, we have to keep in mind the central place of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Essentially, they, for Matthew, uh, Jesus is telling us what the Kingdom of Heaven, as he describes it in Matthew's Gospel, what it looks like, and then he lives that out for the rest of the Gospel. So Jesus says that the Kingdom of Heaven, the reign of God's justice and peace, which followed the tradition of Jubilee... Uh, offers a vision where all flourish, where the common good, including the good of all created beings, is held as paramount, a world where the needs of the poor are placed first, and where all, including plants and animals, we would say, all of creation are treated with honour and respect and given what they need to thrive. And we have done all of that, reflecting on what it means each week. Uh, As we prayed our, but not this week. I know, no, just go back. Uh, Each week praying uh, our prayer for the day through Jesus, our liberator. So, what is it that we need? What assumptions? What attitudes? What behaviors do we need to be liberated from? If we truly believe that Jesus is our liberator. This year our celebration has been overshadowed by the consequences of our forgetfulness of who God is and who we are, our forgetfulness of the invitation to live in this world offered by Jesus and the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, and we have lived with those consequences with the COVID-19 pandemic and as we watch others live through the the effects of climate change, the increasingly ravaging wildfires in the US and the bushfires in Australia which have been made far more intense by the droughts in both those places. The droughts there and in other places around the world and here in this country the water shortages in Auckland the increasingly frequent and destructive and increasingly destructive storms and the increasingly extreme weather patterns all are symptoms of our forgetfulness and our broken relationships with each other, with creation, and with God. And so one of the themes for any season of creation is repentance. It offers a time to repent. And as I've said on other occasions, repentance is... Uh, no, to, to we need to repent of all the ways that we have not lived in Jesus' vision for the reign of God, of our forgetfulness... That we are made in the image of the creating and sustaining God who is making the heavens and the earth. And we have forgotten what it means to be the image of this God. As I've said before, to repent literally means, meta means bigger, noia means mind, bigger mind. We are invited whenever we repent to have a bigger mind, to see the world through different eyes, to see differently, on a bigger canvas, with the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, at the centre. This is what the season of creation is all about, providing an opportunity to see the world we live in and all who live in it in different ways, to see this world as a gift, and to see all who live here, all who live here as gift, and learning to live in ways that reverence this gift. This last Sunday, we celebrate St. Francis of Assisi. One of the gifts of St. Francis is that he prayed, as he prayed around the hills, uh, in the hills around Assisi and further afield in Umbria, he was increasingly overwhelmed by an experience of God and God's love for him and all creation, which led him to treat all people, creatures, and creation with reverence and respect. He became known as the patron saint of creation and of animals. And so that's why we finish uh, the season of creation on his day. That's why we have the animal blessing service on his day. And that's why we have so many cheesy little bird baths with St. Francis on them. Uh, Which is a little bit sad because Francis was a whole lot more than the bird bath man. So there are actually a whole lot of Franciscans who deeply object to having animal blessing services on his day. Because they say... He is so much more than that. My response is, he is. So get people into church, bless their animals, and talk about it. Which is what we're going to do later today. So Francis' experience, in many ways, I'm sure there were others who had that experience as well. But he was somebody who was profoundly shaped by that. uh, And somehow God used that to influence many other people. So up to that point, it was kind of understood that God spoke through the church hierarchy and through the monastic orders, and to suddenly have this person say, well, actually, I'm experiencing God out in creation, and I'm experiencing God's love for me and for this world as I sit and pray in creation, that was a very unusual thing for people to say. might not seem unusual for us today, but it was a radical thought in Francis' time. Francis' response to all of that was one of penance. We don't really like the word penance. It's not a particularly popular word. But the Franciscan writer and priest Richard Rohr in The Art of Letting Go suggests that Francis understood penance as making room for God. We might say that through Jesus the Liberator... He was able to let go of the attitudes and behaviours that blinded him to God. And he understood that the way to do that was to live the gospel, literally. So when the gospel said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and come follow me, that's what he did. And anyone who lived with him had to do the same, which if you were a poor person wasn't particularly hard But if you were one of the wealthiest people in Assisi, it was quite hard, and yet that is what happened. Those were the things that got between them and God, and so their penance was to let go of those things, to make room for God. Francis discovered that the more he practised making room for God, the more he saw God. And in the end, Francis saw God at work in all people, including thieves, lepers, particularly lepers, and Muslims, in all creatures, even the ferocious wolf of Gubbio, and all of creation, including the birds, who he commanded to beware of the sin of ingratitude and to be always eager to praise God. It's that story that led to the bird baths that populate so much of the world. The season of creation is about making room for God by letting go of all that distracts us from seeing God in creation and all who share this world. Jesus, the Liberator, continues to invite us to be liberated from the old ways of seeing creation just as a resource for our use and to live in ways that cares for our common home and for the sisters and brothers who share it with us. So in light of all of that, let's have a look at our Gospel reading for today, Matthew 21, 33-46. Parable of the wicked tenants. This is the third part of Jesus' answer to the question that we heard last week. A question posed by the chief priests and the elders. Somehow the Pharisees get tucked into today but actually they have their own little section of Jesus having a go at them. This conversation was with the chief priests and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not amongst the wealthy elite of Jerusalem. They were a kind of religious subsect who had more in common with Jesus than with this group of people, to be honest. So this is the wealthy Jerusalem elite, all of whom are wealthy landowners and absentee landlords. So we need to remember that when we Hear the story. Jesus is telling a story about them. They get that. And they expected a percentage of their harvest as payment for the land. In fact, many of their tenants used to own the land, but because of the demands of tax, got into too much debt and had to sell their land to the wealthy Jerusalem elite so they could pay those taxes, and then they became tenants on what had been their land which was why the year of Jubilee said that every 50 years the land should be returned back to the people who first owned it. And so there was a huge division between the urban, wealthy elite of Jerusalem and then the poor tenant farmers, in particularly Judea, but particularly in Galilee. So they they didn't like each other, Uh, which is why when revolution hit Jerusalem, the first people to die... Not the Romans, the chief priests. They were the first to be assassinated. Then they worked their way through the wealthy Jerusalem elite. Then they got to the Romans. They got rid of the people they hated the most first of all. So this is a story. Uh, So the wealthy Jerusalem elite. uh, And when these people, um, so they would expect payment. And when payment was not forthcoming because the crops had failed or they were just too slow. Uh, they would send in hired hands to beat those people up and to physically evict them from the land and then they would put different tenant farmers in the place. So when we read the story, we need to read it as this is what happens. So after Jesus had healed and forgiven sins, and we, need, like, we just kind of take that as for granted, but actually... In their world, who got to heal, uh, forgive sins? Anyone? Hmm? Jesus did, but who else got to forgive sins? Within Judaism at the time? The priests. The priests in the temple. It was a temple thing. So this hillbilly person, hillbilly rabbi... Uh, from some small little squat town called Nazareth going around. No priestly links at all, forgiving sins was not going down well. He had no right to be doing that. Only the temple and the temple priests could do that. So he'd been going around forgiving sins and uh, healing people. And then he entered Jerusalem on a donkey which has all kinds of messianic kingly illusions. And then he entered the temple, and he turned over the money changers' table. And then he returned, then he went away for the night, then he came back the next day, and he began to teach in the temple. At which point the chief priests and the elders confront him, and they demand to know by what authority is he doing all of these things, healing, forgiving sins, coming to Jerusalem on a donkey, Overturning money changes tables, teaching in the temple. Who does he think he is? So this is part of Jesus' answer to that question. And Jesus replies by, first of all, asking them a question about John's authority, linking his authority to John's, saying their authority comes from the same place. And they can't answer honestly because they really want to say human authority But all the crowd think that John was a prophet, and they think that Jesus was a prophet. So they're just going to not answer that question, which means Jesus doesn't answer their question, except he does, because then he tells a story about two sons, one of whom, uh, well, they're both asked to go and work in the vineyard, and one of whom says no, but does, and the other says yes and doesn't. And then he tells a story about a landowner and some wicked tenants. And he asked, what should happen to those tenants, and they fall for the trap. And then he uses their answer to condemn them, using the passage from the Psalms that was our sentence today. So it's actually a piece of the Psalms about the, uh, the stumbling block becomes the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing. Now it's important to note that he is condemning them, not Judaism, them, the chief priests and the elders, those leaders. He is condemning them. And he's doing that, uh, and then he carries on and tells some other stories which we will hear next week. Part 3 of Jesus' answer to that question by where does his authority come from, and all of which was an answer to their question, and all of which not only answers their question, but it shows his authority, and at the same time shows up their lack of authority. Sure, they have all the power, and they will use that power to execute him, but they have no authority. And Jesus condemns them for that. Now, at this point, us Christians have felt pretty smart, because... Well for the last 2,000 years we have thought that the authority passed from them to us and that we are the good guys and they were the bad guys Uh, and uh, we have used that uh, smugness to then persecute Jews pretty mercilessly for much of the last 2,000 years and this is one of the stories that is used to justify that. So we need to be aware of the history of this story, it's not a good history. And we need to note that it has been misused. That this is not a story condemning Judaism. It's simply condemned that group of leaders. Now, they are condemned for their lack of fruit. So, what is fruit in this case? Well, I think that takes us back to the restart button of Jubilee. I think it takes us back to the vision held in Exodus 20, our First Testament reading, the Ten Commandments, which we often read as, these are things you have to do so that God will be happy with you, or something like that. But actually, these were ways that one lived in freedom. These people had been slaves in Egypt. They had been brought out of Egypt. They are now free. They don't have to earn that. It was done. All they had to do was moan. God heard their moaning. God acted. They don't have to do anything to get into God's presence. They are already in the presence of God. In fact, as we heard today, they're a little bit terrified about being in the presence of God. They're like, Moses, you deal with God. That's very scary. We'll stay over here. Thank you very much. This is as much presence of God as we can start This is how you live in freedom. This is how you live in the presence of God. Because all those things are already there. This is not a way of earning that. It's a response to that. It's a way of living in that. It also takes us back to the ancient promise of creation being renewed and humanity being restored through God's faithfulness to the covenant with Israel, which is at the heart of Paul's writing. And it takes us back to Matthew's Gospel with what he describes in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. The coming of God's reign of justice and peace where all flourish, where the common good, including the good of all created beings, is held as paramount, a world where the needs of the poor are placed first, and where all, including plants and animals, all creation, are treated with honour and respect and given what they need to thrive. That is the fruit that God is looking for. And if we're honest, just a little bit honest, we've been a little bit like the chief priests and the elders. We have too too easily forgotten those ancient promises. We've forgotten the vision that Jesus offered us. We have supplanted the authority of God with other authorities which are much more beneficial in the short term at least the authority of fossil fuels, for example. We cannot conceive of a world without fossil fuels. We cannot conceive of an economy based on fossil fuels. That's the paramount authority. (coughs) We cannot conceive of a world without our cars. We will not travel by any other means apart from a car. The authority of the car reigns supreme. I'm as guilty as that, as anyone else. And all of that blinds us to God's presence in creation, in all creatures, in the peoples of the world. So we need Francis more than ever. We too, like Francis, need to make room for God. So as we finish this season and give thanks for our pets, which we will do in an hour or so, and all of creation question then is, what might we need to let go of? And what might we need to pay attention to as we continue to make room for God?